Welcome to the Green Majority on CIUT 89.5 FM. We are Canada's longest-running environmental news hour, is what Stefan assures me, after his data punching. Is that what that's called? You punch data? You don't, um, you don't do that. Oh, okay. Well, we're on 89.5 FM. That's true. Toronto's only independent radio station on the FM dial. And many local community radio stations across the country and podcast platforms. All right, and we have environmental climate news. We're going to talk about how to battle climate despair. And then Lauren is going to interview Robin Tress of the Council of Canadians about the Goldboro liquid natural gas terminal that was recently canceled in Nova Scotia. But first, Bill C-12. Bill C-12, Lauren. Yeah. In a week otherwise punctuated by fire and death and despair, Bill C-12 passed, which is fantastic. It is Canada's first passed real climate accountability bill. It is imperfect, as many people know and as many people will tell you, but it is a great starting point, and it was passed in with like hours left to spare in um, before the Senate rose for the summer. So it got in just under the wire and completely to the credit of some really fantastic people who've been working tirelessly for not only the last several months since the bill was introduced, but the last several years to make sure that Canada gets an accountability bill that ensures that we meet our targets and we do so in a way that is equitable and prioritizes the needs of all and we hopefully will start seeing some real progress made in the next few years, in the next decade, and we actually do start working towards fossil phase-out. Not that, of course, there's any language around fossil fuel phase-out in Bill C-12, ha. But still a good thing that it passed nonetheless, and um, there's always room to grow. There are opportunities to amend bills. There are opportunities to ratchet up ambition. Um, With the introduction of the net zero advisory body, there's room to sort of shuffle things around and and raise ambition there as well. So by no means is it a perfect bill, but it is here and we are glad it is here. So that's a little win. Yay. Yes. We're going to start and end the show with a win. With wins. Yeah. Uh, And in the middle, we're going to talk about despair a whole bunch, Uh, mainly because as you know, Dave will talk about in a second, the last couple of weeks that we haven't uh, had a ton of chance to cover the news have been not great from a climate perspective. You know, the ocean caught fire. The heat dome cooked a significant part of the West Coast. Fire season has started about a month earlier uh, than the normal. You could wallow and surround yourself with bad climate news for the rest of your day if you wanted to. And if you're on Twitter or if you follow enough climate people, you will see that I think there's a palpable feeling a little bit of of despair creeping into more communications. More people are talking about how they're sort of struggling right now to to sort of move on. And also, this is our presumption, that more people might be thinking, I need to do something about this. And so once we, after we get to the, the, the brief updates and some news that we think is really important, we're going to dive into that question of how to combat despair. Or if you're someone who just wants to get involved, we've asked a whole bunch of organizers from across, uh, across different places what their advice would be for people who want to get involved and, and fight despair. And we're going to bring that to you as well as our own thoughts. So stick around.
now for some news headlines. The hottest temperature ever recorded in Canada, just shy of 50 degrees Celsius, was recorded last week in Lytton, British Columbia, where a prolonged and brutal heat wave exacerbated a wildfire that destroyed 90% of the town. The mayor of Lytton said it only took 15 minutes for the fire to swallow the entire town, giving the people there barely enough time to flee. Heat waves have been baking most of Western North America this season, killing hundreds of people, worsening the U.S. drought crisis, breaking temperature records, and threatening crops. British Columbia requested help from the federal government and military to fight over 130 fires last week, and the director of the B.C. Wildfire Service has implied that this year could be on pace to become the worst fire season ever for the province. The B.C. Coroner's Service reported that since the onset of the heat wave, there have been almost double the average number of deaths in the province. British Columbia closed schools and universities, and the heat has been slowing down COVID-19 vaccinations as hospitals are rebooking appointments. Streetcar service was, was suspended in Portland because the wires were too hot, and in Seattle, parts of the highway buckled as the heat warped the asphalt. And the Washington Post reports that orchard workers in the U.S. Pacific Northwest are rushing to harvest cherries before they shrivel in the sun, but are stopping around noon to avoid the terrible heat. Researchers at UBC recently decided to calculate how many seashore animals along the Salish Sea have died so far, and have estimated that one billion animals may have perished from the heat wave. Marine animals. They intimated that you could smell the rotting bodies at low tide, which are far too many to be scavenged before they decompose. UBC climate scientist Simon Donner told the Vancouver Sun that heat waves like these are just the beginning. Michael Mann, the professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University, argues that, quote, climate models are actually underestimating the impact that climate change is having on events like the unprecedented heat wave we're witnessing out west right now. On July 3rd, a ball of gasoline leaked from an underwater pipeline and caught fire in the Gulf, setting a small patch of the ocean on fire before it was put out in a few hours with liquid nitrogen. Greenpeace recently went undercover as corporate headhunters and exposed the cynical tactics of Exxon, aggressively lobbying U.S. government officials to reject Biden's climate plan, casting doubt on climate science from the beginning, and merely pretending to support a carbon tax for PR reasons while believing that it will never actually be passed in the U.S. A top Exxon lobbyist was duped by Greenpeace into admitting these things, which Exxon has since claimed are false, even though they surprised no one. The International Institute for Sustainable Development has put out a report showing that Canadian governments have poured at least $23 billion into the Trans Mountain Expansion Pipeline, the Coastal Gaslink Pipeline, and Keystone XL since 2018. 
Trans Mountain was purchased by the federal government after Kinder Morgan decided it was too risky to pursue, and along with Coastal Gaslink is currently being built through unceded indigenous land in B.C. Keystone XL was recently cancelled after Alberta spent billions of dollars on it. And finally, 1492 Landback Lane has won a major victory against the developers that were planning to build housing units on their land. Six Nations land defenders have been occupying the site for over a year to prevent further theft of Haudenosaunee territory and can now use the land for whatever purpose they choose for the foreseeable future because the company decided that their investments, the people who had purchased the houses, they called their investments frustrated because they saw that nothing was happening in terms of removing the, uh, the occupiers of, of the space. So camp spokesman Skylar Williams told APTN, quote, This is just the foot of the mountain in terms of the work that needs to be done. This is a generational struggle. This is something my parents fought for and their parents before them. They did this work so we could at least have an argument today. I hope to at least be able to do that for my children and grandchildren. And he added, quote, I don't think people understand how heavy a burden it is to be on the land in the way that we have, with police constantly surrounding us, days when rubber bullets are flying past our ears, pulling taser darts out of people's backs. I will say, though, before we go to break, it, the, the battle is not over. Uh, there's a lot of court cases that are still connected to it, so they can still use your support. So if you can support 1490 Landback Lane, it's still necessarily required. But with that, we'll go to music break, and then we'll come back to discuss the ways to fight climate despair. here with our second segment to talk about how to fight climate despair and also to get involved if you aren't already. So we're going to ask uh, if you are someone uh, who is already in the fight and you know anyone who might need a push or might be looking for a way in, the goal of this next little segment is to give people an opening to think about it, an open an opening of ways that a few stories of ways other people have gotten involved who are now involved and also a way to sort of to begin thinking about yourself uh, in the action uh, in actions that's so desperately needed. This conversation is framed uh, by, I would say, by two different essays. The first is called All the Right Words on Climate Have Already Been Said. Uh, It's by Sarah Miller, who is a climate reporter and she wrote this recently sort of in the face of all this despair. And it really is just sort of, it's a lament more than anything. It's sort of this understand. It's this position of like, it's a truly personal piece of writing. That's about sort of coming to a point where you don't know if just writing about it feels like enough anymore. And she's sort of looking for other ways out. And that sort of, that brought me to, uh, to asking these questions to people. I, I, I began to ask everyone I could who was involved in climate, you know, how did you get involved? What advice and suggestions would you give to people who were involved, how to get involved? 
And in that, how do you find this way to combat this despair? And the first message, the first thing I got back was uh, was from a friend that is an essay that we I think we covered on the show a, back in when it came out in, in January 2020. But I think it, you have to come back to it when you're talking about this issue. It's by Mary Heglar, and it's called We Can't Tackle Climate Change Without You. That essay sort of has th- has a few things we can leave behind and then a call to action. The things we can leave behind is the idea that individual action is is enough. There's an understanding, even in this essay, in a position in this essay, that people have come to accept and understand that collective action is the only way forward. And as we go through this conversation, I think that's something that came up again and again and again in our, in our conversations. Um, the second is that there's no one single thing you can do. When people ask for a climate change silver bullet or when people say, what's the one thing people can do that's most, most, most effective? Not a useful frame and generally not. There's no single thing that's going to come close to doing enough. And so like that's the... So just, we can move beyond that, too. And the third is that it's not enough to be right. Climate change, arguably environmentalists spent too much of their time believing that if they just explained that they were right better, people would listen. And I think only in the last little bit has that energy shifted towards power building and towards growing uh, a base of, of people who all can see themselves in the vision. And I think that's when we begin to see the movement we have more recently. So I'm going to finish with this one quote, and then I'll throw to you first, Lauren, and then we'll, we'll sort of snowball from there. Uh, but the quote from this essay is, Responding to this crisis is going to have to become part of who we are all the time. Once you understand that, you understand that this isn't about climate action at all. It's about climate commitment. Climate action is recycling or going vegan. Climate commitment is bigger. It's a framework. It's asking yourself, what can I do next? and always next. I think that distinction between climate action and climate commitment is very useful, Uh, but to you, Lauren. So we're approaching this conversation from the standpoint of climate despair because things have been so upsetting and so depressing the last, well, ever, but especially this last week. It's been, it's been especially really quite brutal and seeing, seeing how people are suffering. Maybe you are one of those people who is experiencing that suffering firsthand as opposed to like, me who's sitting in my apartment in Ottawa, just watching it all play out on my phone. Either way, we're approaching this conversation because there's this idea that like people are upset, people are in despair. How do you combat that? And, um, several years ago at university, I, I was lucky enough to be able to devote some research time to like studying climate grief and climate anxiety, right. As that conversation was starting to emerge. And one of the things that I sort of learned or realized, I can't even remember, but basically was that like when you're approaching an individual or a society that is undergoing collective climate anxiety or climate grief, it's like you have the therapeutic route, which is like, yeah, you need to talk about this with people, maybe a professional. Um, it needs to be vocalized. It, it potentially needs to be treated like, um, like any other form of depression or grief or anxiety would be not that those are the same emotion at all, but, um, so there's like the therapeutic route or there's the idea that like, it doesn't matter how much therapy you go to. If you're anxious and upset about climate change, the only thing that is going to make you feel better, really better long-term is to see movement on it, is to see things get better uh, from a climate standpoint, is to see action being taken collectively, politically. Um, And the only way to sort of make sure that that is going to happen in your lifetime is for you to take an active role in making sure that happens. Um, because you can't, we know you can't 
leave it up to the political class or the elite class to make it happen on their own. We have to push for it within our own communities at a community level, whether that's like quite literally through something like mutual aid or whether that's through like working to influence political systems. They're tied together. They're symbiotic, but like multiple approaches. Anyway, yeah, at the, at the end of the day, that's like the biggest piece of advice that I can give that I think you would give Stefan and that any of the people that you've spoken to would give. It's that if you are somebody who is feeling the pressure, who is feeling this despair, the single best thing you can do, aside from speaking to a professional, if you feel you really need to, of course, is, is to take action um, and to take action with other people. And that's the only thing that alleviates those negative feelings. Um, and I can speak to that personally as somebody who has experienced that. And as somebody who has like studied it on a wider scale, I actually, I do have a question for you, Stefan, and maybe it's something we get to today. Maybe it's something we get to another day, but how did you come to sort of climate action? Did it take you getting really bummed out first or? It did. Uh, it did take me getting really bummed out first, although kind of weirdly specifically. And I think it's interesting that it one thing that came up a lot in the answers is is that sort of once you start doing a thing, doing more things suddenly becomes easier. And and you start finding, and especially once you start finding your own pe people to do it with, you know. So what I mean is I, I honestly, I, I always sort of imagined, I'd always cared about the environment, but wasn't, I was in environmental studies program, but I hadn't really, you know, done a lot of things outside of that. And I, weirdly enough, saw the cove which has just the most distressing ending where they murder a bunch of dolphins. And that sort of just broke me in a kind of weird way. And in part, because all the other things that was going on in my brain and that led me to like trying to start the first thing. And that thing, you know, that thing had some successes, but it introduced me to a bunch of new people. And then those new people introduced me to new people. And, I, and to me, that that snowball effect of if you just have one conversation with someone uh, and then you commit to doing one small thing, you probably meet two more, three more people. And those people might have a new thing that you might be able to help with or a new avenue into something. And that can snowball and snowball and snowball. And, you know, the the one one of the most common, I, I sort of have a whole bunch of themes to go through uh, maybe at the end of the segment of, to give people some more concrete ways to think about action. But but that but the the one of the biggest things was join a group. That thing is that's the eighty percent of people, while including other ideas, also included the you have to be a part of a group with other people. If you and and suggesting like you find the right people too. You know, it's not necessarily it might not be the first place you go. It might be somewhere else. But go go out and find people who are caring about this and be with them because that's uh, that's healing in its first place. Yeah, absolutely. And like, like you said, it might not be the first group you go to, like, but you do, especially if you're in, if you're in a new community or if you are brand, 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 brand new to organizing or community engagement or activism or whatever you want to call it, your involvement in the resistance, it can take some time to find the right people. I know, um, it was really easy for me to plug into, organizing circles and find other people to organize with, even if I was like, quote unquote, starting a group, um, by myself, it was really easy to find those people at university in my programs with where I was surrounded by like-minded people. It was really hard for me to do that when I moved back home 
to London, Ontario after university, because it's a different, it's a different community. It's a different vibe. It's a different demographic. It, it took me a really long time to find like-minded people who wanted to organize with me. Um, so unfortunately, like you might have to be really tenacious. You might have to get really creative. It might be a lot of time Googling different keywords on Instagram and Facebook until you find a group of organizers. Um, or it might just be you like suckering your friends into doing it with you. And then over time, gathering speed and finding other people. I know I have a friend who, uh, a dear friend lives out on the East coast, started surfing a couple years ago and like started messaging me being like, Lauren, oh my gosh, climate change is such a big issue. I want, I care about this. Not that he didn't care about it before, but like, I really care about this viscerally now because I have this like newfound relationship with the ocean via my surfing. How do I go about starting a group? And like, that's a conversation that he and I are digging into now because it's like, I want to help him like foster that community. So it's, it takes work, but like, that's the whole point is that it is work. So like relish it, get, enjoy the work. Yeah, and I think actually that there's two things there I want to I want to tease out. The first is that it's so important to find the part of work that you can enjoy. You know, the, the Mary Hegler in this essay goes on to say, you know, do what you're good at and do your best. And because every type of skill is needed within the movement. And so, you know, you don't have to be the person who is, you know, speaking at the rally. In fact, there's probably too many people speaking at the rally and not enough people making sure that everyone else at the rally is eating food. Probably you're going to get a lot further along if you do that. You know, interestingly, when I wanted to call out uh, to some to folks uh, in, in my community in Toronto, one of the answers was actually was focused on checking in on your neighbors during heat waves and storms, right? It, it, uh, very much, very much connected to the the need to build local community to protect each other from extreme heat and extreme weather. Just you know, just as important in in this in in these, in these spaces. And the second thing you, said, you mentioned there that I want to tease out a little bit is that people want to help. Like I will right now commit that if you are listening to the show and you don't know how to get involved, email us at contact at greenmajority.ca and we will help you get involved. There is so many ways to do this and there are so many people who want to help and like help you, you know, whether or not you're a, a newfound surfer or just someone who, you know, is getting out of university and trying to find something, there's always a place for action and there's so many different ways you can do it. And so if you can find that thing that brings you joy, you know, find the, the what you're good at and then connect those two things to understanding the ecosystem you sit in and what is needed, those three things together, I think, will bring you the most, will bring the world the most good and you the most good. Yeah, absolutely. That focusing in on, and I'm stealing this from your notes. I'm sorry, I'm reading ahead, but you talk about, or you have written down um, this Venn diagram that Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson talks about. And it's like a Venn diagram of what brings you joy, what needs to be done and what are you good at and finding where you fit within that nexus. Because like, yeah, like you said, most people, when they think about activism or organizing, they think about being on a picket line or, um, not that strikes aren't integral tactics, but like, you know what I mean? Yeah. They think about like having to stand with a sign or go to a March or be the person speaking at the March with the megaphone. And that's, that is, that's like, that's one moment. That's one moment in a, in a, in a huge, massive sprawling campaign. Like those are the peaks that people see, but like, organizing and activism is about like getting together with people you care about, who care about you and who, who 
who you, who you share values with and talking with them week after week after week and figuring out the ways you can, um, make your community and make your world a bit of a better place. And it's like, and that, and that is why it's the antidote to despair is because you're figuring out the solutions with people who are as invested in the issue as you are. And through that building really strong relationships, it's like, that's the best part about organizing is that like, well, not the best part. The best part is that you're like, hopefully making the world a better place. But like part of making the world a better place is like making your tiny little community world a better place too. You're making friends, you're building connections. It's like, it's reminding you that there's more to your life than just waking up and going to work in the morning and then going to the grocery store and then going to bed. Like it's, it makes you, it makes you feel alive in a way that like not a lot of things do. And it's creative, right? It's, there's, there's places for art. There's places for like the, there's so many different ways. The thing I was going to say was like the movement needs more note takers, like it, I can, every movement could use probably three more note takers. It makes you make sure you're not doing the same thing six times. You know, make sure it's very helpful. Praise be to everyone who takes notes at meetings. Yeah. Not to bring, not to bring like gender and criticism into things right away. But like, if you are a cis man who is into organizing, like, please offer to take notes at the next meeting. Cause I guarantee you the last four people that have done it are, are, are women. Um, but, uh, I think, I think we do need to wrap up soon. I know you're going to go through some stuff, but you mentioned a quote off the top and it made me think about my favorite quote. Whenever people are like, I don't know, you're always asked what your favorite quote is. And mine, I might've even talked about it on the show before is from Lord of the Rings. And it's from this moment in Moria when Frodo and Gandalf are sitting and talking and Frodo literally says, I wish this, I can't remember exactly how he phrases it, but he says, I wish this need not have happened in my time. He's talking about how, how terrible everything is. And he, he wishes that it hadn't happened when he was alive. And Gandalf says, so to all those who live to see such times, but that's not for them to decide. All you have to decide is what to do with, or all we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And I think that's like so important to remember that like, nobody wants to live through this, but here you are, this is the lot you've been given. And like, the best thing, the only thing you can do is is to figure out how how to spend your time here. And so if I can give any folks who are still thinking about their head specifics, if that's sort of what people need, this is a, a set of themes I've pulled from uh, a whole bunch of organizations. So quickly, I want to thank Citizens Climate Lobby, Community Climate Action, For Our Kids, Clean Air Alliance, Toronto 350, Climate Fast, Green Wave West, Seniors for Climate Action Now, and 350 Canada for their uh, suggestions, and I'm just going to run through them in a, in a innovative way here. So first one, as we said previously, is join a group, join a group, join a group. Now, this will be easier, as we said, if you live in big cities. Um, but if you're in smaller cities, there are smaller actions. There are smaller organizations that are doing things. It's find the green movie night and talk to that person. The chances are you'll see something happening, and you can connect with one person, and that's all you need to start, to start snowballing from there. Um... Uh, if you have options, go to a couple different meetings. If you can go to different organizations and see what fits your vibe best or who needs your need the most. If you're the world's greatest note taker and you already in the, go to a place and they already have a great note taker, maybe find the less organized group that needs a really good note taker. Um, uh, talk about it with everyone, especially your friends and family. Uh, bonus if you can make collective commitments on it. Uh, speak to your elected officials 
aim if you can to make it face-to-face or over Zoom rather than an email or a letter, but those are obviously good if you can't. And the best, of course, is to actually cultivate actual relationships with them. You know, these are real people. If you can talk to them multiple times, you, they will begin to know who you are and you will be able to influence them more than you could in other ways. Um, take individual actions, but always try to see if you can move them to global actions as well. So if you're going to do a, an individual action, try to find a way to bring that into a, into a more collective action. Uh, understand that, all, that volunteering can take all forms. Many groups uh, need leaflets delivered or make your own posters or anything. You know, there's so many different ways to volunteer your time. Uh, seven, donate. Uh, pe- these groups need money. The big groups need money. The money, the groups that you've heard need money. But also, there's a whole bunch of places that that are harder to fund or more difficult to fund or, or for, to fall through the cracks of normal funding. And... Um, those really need support too. So if you can find things like uh, there's an organization called Groundswell that actively tries to support, it actively tries to support organizations that are systemically sort of kept away from some of the bigger pots of funding, um, and all these other un- unrecognized groups. You often can do more good by sending to a PayPal than through uh, a more than a more setup, um, a better setup fundraising platform because the PayPal folks almost certainly need it more. Um, go to rallies, uh, if only honestly, as a way to make yourself feel better, uh, going to rallies is one of the best ways to remember, remind yourself that other people exist who think like you and it's a galvanizing moment and they should be moments of joy to come together, uh, and, and sort of see, uh, your collective action. And there are usually groups, uh, whether they're like official nonprofit groups or just like community organizations at those rallies, at those protests looking to onboard people like that is like when you're like developing a campaign you develop an onboarding moment around those big in-person rallies so like people are there looking for you to get you involved so like if you're like oh man i don't know how to plug in go to a rally talk to the people that plan that rally and be like hey my name's so and so i would love to be involved and they'll be like great our meetings on tuesday or whatever yeah, and there's so many open meetings that you can join, you know, that way. And and COVID, I think, has made this harder. And so I think as we come out of this, you know, a lot of climate groups will be looking for more members. And so everyone can always use more support. Um, number nine, learn about local climate policies. So often the devil is in the details. And so understanding your local climate policies is the only way to hold your local officials to account. If you don't, like, they can always say they fully funded something, but you got to know if they did or not. And the only way to do that is to actually be, that's actually to know, uh, tied into that, become a, become an expert in one thing that you're passionate about, that you're particularly passionate about, you know, actually find that space. Um, next one, take time to rest. This one came up and I think it has to be underscored, which is that if you are, especially if you're in the movement right now and you're feeling despair, the answer might not be more action for you personally. It might be take time to rest, go connect with nature and give yourself some space to relax. Um, if you are someone who's just getting started, dive in, but don't let yourself burn out. Keep yourself aware of these things. Um, Small things matter too. Petitions, this sort of stuff, it will always make you feel like you're doing a way to do something. And it's a way to begin that conversation with other people, especially. You know, if you sign a petition, send it to one person you think might be more, could be more, might want to be more engaged and see if they will. And lastly, this is a recommendation. There, I did not know this. Um, 
but Indigenous Climate Action has just recently released a podcast. And the first episode of the podcast is an interview with Ariel Deranger about how Indigenous Climate Action was founded and explains beautifully and strikingly why Indigenous peoples need to be leading the conversations on climate policy and land uh, and territory discussions. And it's a foundational understanding to have about uh, who holds the values and worldviews that will enable us to stave off the worst impacts of the climate crisis, which is important for both folks who are long-term in the, in the movement, but also new folks to sort of bring in uh, and set a foundation. And so those are some very specific examples of things you can do. If you, if you have any questions about them, if you want to get connected to someone, if you have any things, please do email us uh, because we will connect you. We, as best we can, if you live in a very small town, we might just give you ideas because we don't have connections to every place, but we'll do our best. So if that's something interesting, you, please let us know to you, Lauren. I think the one last thing I would add is that um, a reminder that like we're saying, get involved in a group, get involved in a group, get involved in a group. And understand that um, not only does your involvement in that group vary, that like all roles are valued, but all groups do different things. So not every, not action, climate action doesn't always look like organizing a rally, organizing a march, organizing a sit-in. It can look like mutual aid. It can look like helping your community and your neighbors adapt and deal with the effects of climate change in your community. So if you're in a community that's flooding, it can look like sandbagging to help your neighbors deal with the flooding. So um, that's a that's a weird example that's kind of niche, but I, I'm just trying to say it can it can look like so many things and it doesn't have to necessarily look like a petition or calling up your MP if that's intimidating to you. It can look like making change and shifting systems within your own neighborhood and within your own community and on like a personal and community community for the hundredth time at a small scale, it can look like immediate transformation as opposed to always influencing the political class. Um, so climate action can look like whatever you want it to be. Just get involved somehow. Exactly. Do what, do what you're good at and do your best and good luck. Welcome back to The Green Majority. My name is Lauren and I'm here once again with Robin Tress of Council of Canadians. Robin, you've chatted with us before. We're so glad to have you back. But you are here today to chat with me about the Goldboro LNG project, which was a liquid natural gas export terminal proposed to be in Nova Scotia. The proposal was put forward by Calgary-based energy company Paraday, but they just announced cancellation of the project earlier this week. 
which people are really stoked about. Of course you are. So <laughs> I'm really stoked to hear more about this and more about the project and all of the good work that happened to get it canceled. Yeah, let's maybe start with the basics. Tell me about what the project was going to be and why were people organizing against it? Goldboro LNG was meant to be a natural gas liquefaction facility that would have exported natural gas across the Atlantic to Europe. In this case, it was supposed to go to Germany and it was supposed to have two phases. The first phase is just smaller and the second phase is more gas. It would have required building new pipeline capacity to bring fracked gas, mostly fracked gas from Alberta, all the way to Nova Scotia. So the company would have needed more pipelines, particularly across Quebec. Then in the process of doing all of that, it would have increased Nova Scotia's greenhouse gas emissions by about 18%, which is at this point completely unacceptable. It was proposed in 2013, and so it's been about eight years that people have been fighting to stop this project in various ways. There's a lot of different people and a lot of different concerns that were raised. Some of the biggest and most consistent concerns were from Mi'kmaq folks. This project also would have required building a work camp. People call it a man camp to house almost 5,000 construction workers in the construction phase of the project. And that would have taken place on unceded, unstarted Mi'kmaq territory. And as we know from the inquiry on missing and murdered Indigenous women, work camps like this, where people tend to be transient, the working and living conditions are pretty cramped and pretty hard. Those work camps tend to bring with them substance abuse, drug abuse, and human trafficking problems. And so where there's already such a crisis of Indigenous women and relations going missing and being murdered and experiencing violence in general, it was very unacceptable <laughs> to Mi'kmaq folks to allow that kind of construction project to happen on their lands, not to mention the environmental destruction that would come with that as well, in addition to the violence against women and, and Indigenous relations. There are quite a lot of people who are very worried about the climate impact of this project. One person I should give an absolute shout out to is Ken Summers from NoFrac, the Nova Scotia Fracking Resource and Auction Coalition. Ken is a longtime homie of mine and kept us all very on task and abreast to all the things that happened related to Goldboro over the last eight years. He and lots of other grassroots organizations in the Atlantic and in Quebec and also on the West Coast. These folks did a ton of research into what kinds of risks would come with Goldboro, what kinds of regulatory stuff they needed to do and where they failed to do that. They were really hounds on all that kind of detailed information that came in very handy throughout the fight. And then at the very end of the day, about in January of this year, the Council of Canadians learned from Ken and a bunch of other grassroots folks that Perry Day had asked the federal government for almost a billion dollars to get this project off the ground. And in addition to all the other ways this project was unacceptable, that was truly unfathomable. The idea of giving a nearly billion dollar subsidy to a project that couldn't in eight years muster a single investor and also is a crime against the climate and Indigenous women. In the last six months of this long protracted struggle, the council and myself included jumped in to help push back against that $1 billion subsidy that Goldboro was asking for. And in the end, the key deadline here was that Goldboro, the company is called Periday. Periday needed to make their final investment decision by June 30th. And so they needed to secure some kind of investment by that time. And they didn't get it from the federal government and they didn't get it from anywhere else. And so they're not doing it. That's fascinating. I hadn't realized that they didn't have a single like regular run-of-the-mill capital investor. And I guess, I don't know if anything, that's more of the same pattern that we've been seeing with like 
people pulling out of TMX, people pulling out of Energy East. Yeah, there's especially with liquefied natural gas, like it's so expensive. It's so energy intensive and it's just not common practice. And there's so many more projects that are proposed that like they don't even meet a market need. They don't make sense in the market if that's your logic. And so there's lots of projects that have been canceled like this one. The big projects get proposed all over North America and the majority of them are, they're never going to be built. Maybe none of them will ever be built. We'll see about that. But this company in particular, one interesting thing is that the CEO of Perry Day was also involved in another LNG project on the West Coast that never came to life. <laughs> it never was built, but he walked away with $30 million in his pocket from a project that was never built. And then he came to the East Coast, tried to propose the same thing. And throughout the years of trying to bring this project to life, he said a lot of things about this project that were not true, including that the German government had serious interest and had a had made a loan guarantee to this project and it was trying to garner more investment by saying that the German government had done that. And in fact, we learned due to some great investigative journalism by the Halifax Examiner, we learned that Germany had never done that and they had issued a letter of interest, which is like an invitation to tell them more about the project, but is not a loan guarantee in any way, shape or form. And what we learned from that reporting is that the German government had told Perry Day to stop misrepresenting the relationship between the German government and this company. And so the ways that this particular company presented itself publicly were beyond what I have seen myself, what other corporations have done. Are you at all familiar with the musical, The Producers? I am not, but I've been like, people throughout my life have told me to watch it. The general concept is there are these two producers who realize they can make more money with a flop musical that gets canceled after night one than they can with a successful musical. And I feel like this Paraday CEO is pulling like the pipeline LNG equivalent of what the producers and the producers did. Being like, if I can make a flop, I will still get to walk away with more money than if I have to actually do my job and follow through with the project. I wonder if that is legit <laughs> business strategy for people in the LNG and fracking business, because I do think that's not an uncommon story. Anyway, there were a few other things that I found particularly troubling about the way that the Perry Day presented themselves publicly. They had a few key points they would say about Goldboro LNG. One was that it was an act in reconciliation, which... Words have meaning, and that's not what that one means. <laughs> yeah. So there was some, like, question. It was unclear for a long time what the relationship was between elected band councils and the company. But to me, it's none of the band councils were saying publicly that they were in agreement or excited or had a contract or anything like that with Perry Day, but Perry Day kept saying that they had all these agreements with Mi'kmaq communities. And then in the last year, six months, we saw tons of grassroots Mi'kmaq women coming out of everywhere saying that this would be an atrocity on their land. We saw the Native Women's Association of Nova Scotia say that they opposed the project and then we saw the Mi'kmaq Assembly of Chiefs of Nova Scotia announce that they were going to conduct their own consultation, again, like, like small C consultation, to hear from people about what they think about this project. And yet they were, the company was saying that this was an act in reconciliation. So I found that <laughs> troubling. They also said it was going to be net zero carbon, which is, I want to say impossible. Can I go out on a limb and say impossible? They, they proposed this whole project in 2013 and a couple of months ago, they announced that they were going to do this magical 
Like uh, through offsets or through CCUS? Through CCS, through capture, carbon capture storage. They were going to extract gas in Alberta, and then they were going to have a CCS facility in Alberta, and then they were going to ship the gas here, and then they were going to use a ton of energy to compress it, and then they were going to put it across the ocean, and somehow the CCS that would account for the emissions associated with getting the oil out of the, or the gas out of the ground, that would somehow offset the whole thing. So it was real magical thinking as most thinking about CCS is. So that was a cool thing. They always said they were going to be net zero, which they obviously could not do. Yeah. And they said that they were in good financial situation to pull this project off. And in the end, they never got a single investor. So it was, for me, it was a lesson in how corporations can tell a great story and how that story can be patently untrue. Yeah. My one last sort of question pertaining to the nuts and bolts of the project is you'd mentioned that because they'd be bringing the natural gas from Alberta to the East Coast. Did you say they'd have to increase pipeline capacity? So like another line or expansion of a line would have had to go through? Or is there already existing pipeline capacity to get that natural gas out to the East Coast? Yeah, it's that part has always been a little bit unclear because it depends on how much gas they would bring and what happens to the rest of the market. But as it stands now, if they did the full version, if they did both, they call them trains, but if they did both halves of this project and brought it to its full capacity that they were planning to do, I don't think that they could have moved enough gas to Nova Scotia to do that without building additional pipeline capacity. So going back to like movement resistance aspects, what did quote unquote resistance look like in this case? So I think the first thing I should say again is that I have only been in the last six months of this eight year struggle. And so I can really only talk about that last piece, though I know a lot of work went in over the years by grassroots people and by environmental organizations, and I'm sure Mi'kmaq land defenders, though I'm not clear on the details. I know that, so in the last six months, my work, Council of Canadians contribution, was really around the threat of that billion dollar subsidy. And so we found out through some of the grassroots folks who did all kinds of research that Perry Day had lobbied five MPs on the East Coast, as well as two ministers' offices in Ottawa, and they had lobbied them several times. <laughs> and so we figured that if we could push back on those particular people who had been hearing from Perry Day to make sure that they heard from people as well, then that would be a good strategy. So we set up one of those click to send letters, and we saw more than 5,000 people send letters to their MPs and the ministers. And then after that, we had a week where we had set up a number of meetings with MPs on the East Coast to talk about this project. And we got like about 100 people to call each of them in advance of those meetings, just to put a little more weight in there. And then we had a town hall as well, where we heard from some of the people who've been fighting this for a long time and some Mi'kmaq women who uh, wanted to raise their concerns as well. And in the end, we had we had a little day of action at the end of June for folks across the country where my favorite thing that happened in this resistance, it's important to bring creativity and levity into everything, even though we're dealing with a climate crisis. And one, one MP in particular who was lobbied by the company a number of times was Bernadette Jordan, who Bridgewater, and is also the fisheries minister. And from my experience, she's really not good at responding to her constituents at all, including the Council of Canadians chapter in her writing. And so the chapter, honestly, they tried for months just to hear back from someone from her office. And like, I get it. She's a minister. 
She can't have time to meet with everybody, but no one even ever got a call back from someone in her office, which is really distressing that this is like a huge issue and no one in her office could find time to hear from constituents about that. And so one day (laughs) the chapter, the Council of Canadians chapter got, got a real toilet and they set up a sign in the back of the toilet that said, don't flush a billion dollars down the toilet. And then they put it outside of her office in Bridgewater next to the road, which is quite a busy road. And they handed out some flyers and talked to people who came by and talked about how this issue was concerning and that Bernadette Jordan was not making herself available to constituents the way she made herself available to the company. And then June 30th rolled around and the company couldn't get any money. So that was the end. I can't express enough how this was a long fight (laughs) that required a ton of work over the long haul. So that was all I just said was just from the last couple of months. I'm just not, I wasn't there the whole time. So I don't know. I appreciate the disclosure. So yes, there's years and years of work that's been happening. It's just, we're just hearing about the last six months right now. Yeah, Um, and I guess one other thing I'll add, there's like this specific struggle, you want to call it a campaign, sure. Like it's about this one project. There's like that work that happened specifically to stop Gold Road. But then obviously there's this global climate movement, which has been led by frontline communities all over the world for decades, who've been saying for literally decades that we can't keep extracting fossil fuels and we need to create an economy that's based on something other than extraction. And that's like life affirming. And that's really coming to bear in like capitalist markets now where like it's harder and harder for companies to get funding. It's harder and harder to get insurance. It's harder and harder to get approvals from governments and bureaucracies to get those projects off the ground. And so like this particular struggle to stop this one project took eight years, but it's nested within this like global movement that has created the conditions that made it possible also for us to stop this one project. And so I'm just eternally grateful for everyone who has, who's done the work in the last 30 years, basically, to, to be pushing for this kind of climate action and rejection of further fossil fuel extraction. So bouncing off of that then, because you have rooted this fight within the historical context of not only like the larger climate movement, but like even just the way markets are shifting in the last few years and and like the realities of how climate change is is impacting things like (laughs) investment decisions. What does this win mean, both in this particular instance, as it pertains to like Goldboro LNG and for LNG on the East Coast in general? So this was the only project in Nova Scotia, certainly. There's another project proposed in Quebec, which is not looking like it's in very good shape either, because it's like the environmental thing in Quebec. And they recently issued a report about the LNG project in Quebec that basically said it's not possible for this project to have a, a net positive impact on the climate, which is not a good place to be if you're uh, in an industry that's trying to argue that LNG is somehow a bridge fuel that's going to help us reduce our emissions. So there's a ton of important grassroots organizing that's happening there all over the province, especially in the Gaspé area, like along the St. Lawrence where the project would be. Yeah, I don't think things are looking good for LNG projects in general in Canada. Will any of them happen? I don't know. Should any of them happen? Definitely not. Should we be immediately investing public dollars not in LNG and fossil fuels and instead in efficiency and renewables and making sure that people have equal access to those jobs? 100%. Yeah, that's that. So where does the focus pivot now then? If LNG isn't happening on the East Coast, but you have all these people that have done all this great work, Obviously, everybody can breathe a sigh of relief, take a beat for a second, but where does the energy and the focus pivot now? Yeah, I think there's a a few LNG facilities proposed in 
BC that are a lot closer to reality than I think the ones in the East Coast are. And so I hope that folks fighting out there and those movements can feel some hope coming from this failure. I think it points to the fact that like this industry is not a winner. It's not a winner. And it's getting harder and harder for companies to find the financing and pull it together to get these projects off the ground. And so I'm hoping this can be a shared win across the movement of people trying to stop LNG and other fossil fuel infrastructure. In Quebec, certainly it's, I hope it's a boost <laughs> to fighting that one project as well. And then in Nova Scotia, which is where I am and where I live, we, so I'll digress for a minute here. We recently commissioned some very interesting polling where we asked people, as we recover from COVID, do you agree that we should move away from fossil fuels and towards renewables and efficiency and support for workers? And 85% of people said yes. Like that is an unbelievable amount of public unity on such a huge issue and such a difficult issue. And not a single government in this country, provincial or federal, is actually delivering what the public clearly wants. And that polling, like it's not only Nova Scotia, we asked the same question in Newfoundland and Labrador and the results were about the same. It was like four in five people want that. Four in five people want that energy transition. And you ask the same question across the country. Other people have done other polls as well. And it's basically the same. So the vast majority of people want, when there's appropriate support to help people with a huge economic transition, people want to move away from fossil fuels. And so for Nova Scotia, we're expecting an election to be called any day now, provincially. And same here, like not one government, not one party in this place is, is offering a real plan that can deliver a real energy transition that provides opportunity for people in an equitable way and protects the climate. Nobody is doing that. And so I think it's, I'd like to issue that challenge <laughs> to every party and anyone considering running in the federal election, which we're also expecting to come sometime this year, we need a plan. We need a real plan. We need it now. So I'm hoping that the energy out here in Nova Scotia can pivot a bit towards that of recognizing that we have actually an incredible amount of unity among people. And we need to just organize that power enough to drive real policy change and real climate action plans. It's just unacceptable not to have that at this late stage. I'm feeling your energy. I'm feeling your fire, your passion, your certainty that this is a fight that can be won and that it's a fight that people want to happen. I'm digging it. There's no other way. I'm feeling particularly fiery. I know the West Coast is on fire right now. I'm in Nova Scotia where we've got a made in the shade out here. It's not that hot. <laughs> but my brother is a forest firefighter in British Columbia. And like, he's in the interior, he's in the thick of it. And every time I see, and like, he's busy too. Like I can't really reach him. I'm sure he's fine, but I can't call him at the end of the day or anything. Like it's freaky. This is yeah. like happening now. And so like with the forest fires and the heat dome and everything out there, and just like how real that is for people in places that I love. It's just my intolerance for climate denial is at an all-time high, I think. Yeah. How can you not be compelled to want to do something and demand a real adequate plan with real adequate, ambitious enough policy and moves when you have somebody who, like so you said, is quite literally in the thick of the woods? On that note, it is time for us to wrap up. Where can people find council if they want to get involved in any of Council of Canadians' campaigns and work? Yep, in no particular order. Our Twitter is CanadiansORG. Our website is Canadians.org. Facebook, Council of Canadians. 
all that good stuff. You can find my contact on the website and get in touch. We've never stopped working on fossil fuel subsidies. <laughs> We've never stopped working on climate change. And we're doing some pretty interesting work on supporting local organizing around Green New Deal related campaigns at a local level. So if anyone out there is interested in that, please check us out, canadians.org. I'd love to be in touch. Yeah, you're a rad, wonderful team with some of the best people out there. So thanks so much for your time today, Robin. I super appreciate it. Again, this was myself, Lauren Latour, chatting with Robin Tress of Council of Canadians, all about the recently canceled Goldboro LNG project on the East Coast. So thanks so much for your time today.